This is the Reformed Libertarians Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute with Carrie Baldwin and Gregory Baus. We explore free society from a Reformed perspective. You can find us at reformedlibertarians.com. We talk about culture, society, politics, economics, theology, philosophy, worldview, and more, helping those interested in liberty and human flourishing to think about them based in the Reformed faith. This is episode seven. We're discussing conservatism and libertarianism. I'm Gregory Baus here with Gary Baldwin, and we'll be talking about an article by Jared Casey, philosophy professor emeritus of University College Dublin. We'll also recap some related key points at the end. In this article from 2011, entitled, Can Conservatives Be Libertarians?, He addresses whether being conservative in the senses he defines is necessarily at odds with also being libertarian and vice versa. We link to the article in the show notes, as always. It's about a 20-minute read. And there's also a link to an audio presentation on the topic by the author. The article is really an abbreviated version of a longer chapter, about 20 pages, with citations in footnotes, and we'll also link to that. Carrie, how would you briefly summarize what Casey says in this article? Yeah, so Casey begins by referencing Russell Kirk, a chief American proponent of an Anglo-American traditional conservatism. Kirk famously mischaracterized libertarianism as being a matter of utilitarian and libertine despising of all values except personal liberty. This is a common criticism by conservative Christians of libertarianism. Casey then describes Anglo-American traditional conservatism in accord with Kirk and a British proponent named Roger Scruton as emphasizing a social, cultural, and moral preference for continuity, or what we might say, a traditionalism. In contrast, though, Casey then points out the primary concern of genuine libertarianism as it's a political philosophy, not an ethical system, nor a worldview, is the legitimate use of coercion. And he explains the way that liberty is valued in libertarianism. Casey concludes with reflections on how, on the one hand, conservatives might not affirm libertarianism, And yet, on the other hand, how libertarians may nevertheless also be conservative. Gregory, why would you say this article is important for our listeners? One of the reasons this is an important article for at least reformed libertarians is that in many respects, we are obviously conservative, including the sense of recognizing the indispensable function of tradition. As Christians holding to sola scriptura, we confess the genuine, divinely given capital T tradition, the faith once for all delivered. Scripturally revealed morality and a basic view of human nature and society, these don't come from our political philosophy, but rather they provide the basis and context for it. And they enable us to recognize that institutions and so much that is crucial for a healthy individual and societal life emerges from human action, but not human design, and is 
propagated by those habits of imitation, custom and tradition, as a sort of social wealth and wisdom of practice accrued through generations. There's a humorous story I heard from one of my grandmothers who probably read it in Reader's Digest, I'd guess. It goes something like this. There's a daughter being shown by her mother how to cook a roast. The mother says, this is how we prepare it with salt and spices and so on. And the mother says, then we slice the ends off the roast and lay it in the roasting pan like so. And we set the oven temperature to thus and such and so on. And the daughter says, wait a minute, mom, why do we slice the ends off the roast? And the mother thinks and says, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I should ask your grandma. So they call grandma and grandma says, well, I never thought to wonder about that. I'm not quite sure why we slice the ends off the roast. I should ask your great grandma. I'm seeing her today and I'll call you back. So grandma visits great grandma, gets the answer she was looking for and calls back her daughter and granddaughter on the phone. In the end, it turns out that great grandma never had a roasting pan that was big enough and would slice <laughs> the ends off the roast just so it would fit in the pan. <laughs> That's a funny story. I feel like I've had this conversation with my mom before. It actually seems fairly emblematic of a standard American attitude towards the status quo. I wonder... If that's a uniquely American story, though, or if other cultures have similar cautionary or skeptical tales about tradition. Yeah. In contrast to that, however, imagine as actually happened in Cambodia, a whole generation or the third of a generation that was left after the communist revolution never learned how to cook at all and grew up eating rats and cockroaches to survive. Mm. And the only way a lot of Cambodian cuisine survived at all was pretty much because some people escaped to Long Beach, California, and years and years later, brought recipes and cooking techniques back to their homeland. Wow. And cooking is just one small part of that horrifically sad and true story. A society's functioning depends on a myriad of customs and traditions, a social wealth of wisdom, just like economic wealth and capital that once lost cannot be easily replaced. But Carrie, in the article, what does Casey say about the way we should value tradition? Yeah, Casey makes the point that commitment to continuity cannot properly itself be a sufficient criterion. After all, if some custom or institution or belief is bad, its continuation is not better than its termination, assuming, of course, you don't replace it with something worse. But we must evaluate ingrained practices not by the fact of their longstanding or commonality, but by genuine normative considerations. Are these things really grounded in the truth? Appealing to merely longstanding practice, in other words, we've always done it this way, is itself fallacious. It calls for evaluation in terms of other God-given norms too. So just consider the legalized institution of slavery ever since the earliest records of human civilizations, and you'll see his point. Casey says, quote, tradition can have, at best, a heuristic function, 
for however much something has been done for however long and by however many. Questions can always be asked. Is this right? Is this good? Is this the best or better? And these questions subvert any ultimate normative claim that tradition can make, end quote. So a heuristic is a kind of shortcut or guide in our thinking that aids in discovering what's important, better, or true. The catch is, of course, that our current present-day judgment might actually be in error. It's not that people of past ages were necessarily wiser, but that neither are we necessarily wiser. We might not be able to discover the reasons for a practice, but our ignorance of the reasons is not itself a reason to abandon generationally developed ways of doing things. And the fact is that historically free-grown ways of doing things might be wiser ways than any one generation is even aware. It might be that some custom or institution or belief is not really bad, but at the moment, short-sightedly, some might erroneously judge its termination to be expedient. So Gregory, what's a good example to illustrate this point? We can consider the example of marriage and family. Of course, we know marriage and family are instituted by God. Nevertheless, various rationalistic proposals from Plato's to Mao's to BLM have been suggested and attempted in order to reorganize societies in some other way, that is, without marriage and family. But the evidence is clear that personal and broader societal flourishing is significantly dependent to a high degree on the health of marriages and families. I'm reminded of something both Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams, two outstanding economists, observed regarding the destruction of marriages and families in the U.S. during the latter part of the 20th century. They both pointed out the fact that neither slavery nor legalized segregation nor the harshest racism inflicted as much damage to Black Americans by destroying families as has U.S. government welfare during the 1960s. As terrible as slavery and segregation and racism are, it's the welfare system that has wreaked havoc on those families. There's a great article written by Wendy McElroy at Mises Institute citing both Soul and Williams in articulating this fact, and we'll link to that in the show notes. And of course, this applies to marriage and families across the board, not only to Black families that Williams and Soul highlight. Overall, the point is not about good intentions, but rather about perhaps unintended consequences. Most people who have been on or are on government welfare would say it's helpful to them, but they're only looking at the immediate impact, like food on the table or utility bill paid, not the broader consequences, in this case, on the structure of the family itself. Providing what we might call a social safety net is something better suited for non-state organizations, not monopoly government programs. Private organizations can afford to account for family dynamics in ways the state simply cannot. So we're not suggesting that the poor be left to bootstrap themselves, rather that the state keeps the poor poorer and for longer periods of time and creates more poverty overall. If we really truly care about people's welfare, then abolishing government welfare and removing all regulations and restrictions to non-government mutual aid is one of the most caring things we can possibly do. And this is simply one example of the universal rule. That is, if it's a government program, it's destructive of tradition, of liberty, 
and overall human well-being, even in spite of the perhaps best of intentions. Hopefully not to complicate things by bringing up another essay, but a central point about historically free-grown ways and traditions is also raised by the classical liberal and Austrian economist Friedrich Hayek in his outstanding 1958 essay entitled Freedom, Reason, and Tradition. That's about 17 pages with endnotes, and we'll link that in the show notes too. Contrary to a number of recent writers, such as Patrick Deneen in his book Why Liberalism Failed, or even David Coises in his book Political Visions and Illusions, which we otherwise recommend with some caveats, Hayek demonstrates that present-day autonomous self-type so-called liberalism or statist progressivism was never a later stage development out of classical liberalism, but always existed contrary to it as a separate and fundamentally different conception of liberty, human nature, and the nature of society. It's an excellent complement to Casey's essay, and Hayek raises the issues you just did about respect for tradition and yet also the need for flexibility or non-aggression in such things so that improvements are possible through trial and error. That's exactly right. And Casey points out that non-aggression and commitment to it is what libertarianism is. It doesn't entail libertinism or moral relativism or denial of realities beyond an imagined atomistic individual and one's choice. It has nothing to do and never has had anything to do with the illusion of an autonomous self. Casey also explains that tolerance, or it might be better to say non-aggression, does not entail condoning others' behavior. Rather, the issue is, and we'll never tire of explaining it, if some behavior is not a matter of initiating coercion against persons or property, then coercive means to prevent or stop it are not legitimate. Casey says that in a libertarian society, quote, one would be within one's right, for example, to prohibit types of behavior of which one morally disapproved to licensees on one's property on pain of the withdrawal of the license, just as one is entitled to require a visitor to one's home to leave if his behavior should become unacceptable, or for any other reason whatsoever, or for none. Such a right subsists whether a property is owned by one person or by a community. In such a way, then, could conservative principles obtain traction in a libertarian society, end quote. This, by the way, solves the problem of religious freedom, and we've got another link for that in the show notes. In the second half of the article, Casey brings up another mischaracterization of libertarianism. Conservative critic Robert Nisbet erroneously claims that for libertarians, individual freedom in almost every conceivable domain is the highest of all social values and is so irrespective of what forms and levels of moral, aesthetic, and spiritual debasement may prove to be the unintended consequences of such freedom. Casey continues, on the contrary, I should say that for libertarians, liberty is the lowest of social values, lowest in the sense of being most fundamental, a sine qua non or indispensable element of a human action's 
being susceptible to moral evaluations in any way at all. Exactly. For actions to be moral, they must be free. Now, this isn't to deny that the use of responsive, proportionate coercion, for example, to enforce restitution by aggressors to their victims, is civil justice. Civil justice requires such coercion in such cases. But rather, the point is that no one is exercising the virtue of, say, temperance if there is a coercive prohibition on alcohol. Nor is anyone exercising charity by having their property forcefully confiscated and redistributed to others. These are zombie simulacra of virtues, and their coercive enforcement is the desecration of genuine morality. Right. Casey goes on to quote well-known libertarian Murray Rothbard, who says, quote, only an imbecile would ever hold that freedom is the highest or indeed the only principle or end of life. Continuing, Casey says, Rothbard agreed with Lord Acton's dictum that freedom is the highest political end, not the highest end of man per se. Now, this point might call for a little elaboration. And here's what I think part of a reformed libertarian position must be. Of course, we know that one's chief end, you know what's coming, say it with me, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Amen. And politically speaking, subservient to that chief end as all things are, I think we must say that the leading norm for civil governance is that of civil justice. But that ties in with Acton's and Rothbard's view in the sense that civil justice, in giving to each their civil due, which is to respect one's right of self and property ownership, and so to not initiate coercion against anyone's person or property, this is the understanding of liberty politically at issue. In this sense, because this sort of liberty is one's right, it is one's civil due. It is civil justice. So we hope listeners will read Casey's article and perhaps also Hayek's article as a helpful complement. In our discussion, we've highlighted a few key points. First, libertarianism has nothing to do with being libertine or against morality, or against tradition, or against legit authority. And Reformed libertarians are, of course, committed to biblical morality and are certainly conservative in the sense of properly valuing traditions and recognizing the necessity of tradition. Second, the way we value tradition is not based on mere commitment to continuity as though that could be abstracted from all the other God-given norms that must be considered. Third, we acknowledge tradition can be, among other things, a transgenerational wealth of wisdom, which, since it's often not the result of intentional human design, might defy our present-day attempts to comprehend, but is not to be discarded on that basis. Now, Carrie, how would you reiterate the final key point. So in the end, this is the fundamental difference between libertarian and non-libertarian conservatives. If one lacks a proper understanding of civil justice in relation to the non-aggression principle, 
which is the case with non-libertarians, then politically, liberty will be perpetually sacrificed to other values, ultimately to the detriment of those values, including to the detriment of tradition. Recently, we all heard religious so-called common good conservatives to their shame, although these authoritarians are largely unrepentant, calling for the closure of church services, even some for mandatory vaccinations, right along with the progressive social engineers. It is only by maintaining the proper view of liberty, that is, a view of civil justice informed by self-ownership and property rights, and not aggression, that we can keep politics within its God-given limits, and to that extent, better promote conditions for greater moral and overall flourishing to God's glory. Thanks for listening to the Reformed Libertarians podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute with Carrie Baldwin and Gregory Baus. See the website for each episode's show notes and sign up for our email list. Don't forget to rate and review Reformed Libertarians podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Find our email and social media on our contact page at reformedlibertarians.com.